Oh, dear Father, we just so thank you for the blessing that you have given us, the blessing of eternal life, that you have set us free from sin and have such great promises for us starting here on earth. Thank you for Lily, Father, and may you just bless her and give her the words to speak to us, and may our hearts and minds receive it with clear understanding. Thank you that you are here amongst us today and that you speak to us. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. What's my mic? There we go. Good morning, everyone. So, would you think back with me 38 years? Specifically, where were you in 1979? I was in my junior year at Biola College, and that was the year that there was a Grammy award-winning song by Bob Dylan out. And I think that Bob Dylan had to have read our passage today before he wrote it. I'm just sure of it. See what you think. The song is called, Gotta Serve Somebody. Here's a few of the lyrics. You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You might like to dance. You may be a heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed. <laughs> no way. Am I singing? <laughs> I, this, I'm, I'm, I'm doing it like a poem, okay? I can read a poem, but I can't sing. Can anybody hear it? it who, how many are familiar with this song? Okay, quite a few, but not everyone. Okay, so back to my poetry. <laughs> you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. You may be a state trooper, you might be a young Turk, you may be the head of some big TV network, you may be rich or poor, you may be blind or lame, you may be living in another country under another name, <laughs> but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. You may be a preacher with your spiritual pride. That isn't our pastor, Jeff, is it? <laughs> anyway, you may be a preacher with your spiritual pride. You may be a city councilman taking bribes on the side. You may be working in a barbershop. You may know how to cut hair. You may be somebody's mistress, maybe somebody's heir. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. What do you think? Was Bob Dylan perhaps a fan of the Apostle Paul? <laughs> Paul could have written those lyrics because in them is the main truth, I believe, of today's chapter. Now, for Paul, for the Christian audience um, that he was writing Romans, the young church in Rome may have added an even more specific stanza. You may be under the law. You may be under grace. 
You may walk the path to righteousness or follow the human race. You may be obedient in your heart or you may be slaves of sin. You may choose death or you may choose sanctification. (laughs) But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Do you agree with Bob Dylan that the many choices that we make in life could be boiled down to these two? Serving the enemy and his purposes or serving the Lord and his? Last week, with regard to sin, we talked about our choice, which is right there in the first half of Romans. We can either continue living in sin or we can... Walk in newness of life. Another way to put it is we can continue our enslavement or we can be freed from sin. Jesus, we said, bought us the ability to choose. Before that, we were dead in our transgressions. I am so glad that God did not make us robots that he could control with a remote. Aren't you? What a high value God places on choice. And I know I've said this in many different ways. This is because he deeply desires relationship. And he wants a relationship with us. And he wants it to be a two-way street. For God so loved the world. That's his motivation. He longs for an intimate, love-based connection, and that necessitates our freedom to be able to choose, to choose him or not. And there's not only that choice, we said, but once we choose to follow Jesus, then sanctification happens choice by choice by choice as well. Sanctification, we said, is is the inward growth process We defined it last week as the process of being set apart from sin or increasing in holiness day by day. Even in this process, we're going to see later in chapter 8, that God hangs in there with us ever so closely, and he does this by giving us the Holy Spirit to abide in us. That is close. (laughs) And so we are never alone in this process of sanctification. We're never alone. Our author Paul says in Philippians 3.12, not that I've already reached the goal, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Christ Jesus has made me his own. Doesn't that have a great ring to it? What a nice thought that he's made me his own. But if you just do a little bit of shift in those words and you change, he, Christ Jesus, has made me his own to Jesus Christ owns me. Now how do you feel about that? Are you okay with that? 
Paul, in eight short verses, uses the word slave eight times. Slave. What comes to your mind when you hear the word slave? Being an American with our history, (laughs) I am guessing that you don't have such great images, but scholars say that the use of this word in the original language, which is uh, in the Greek, it's doulos, it is not similar in most ways to the early American slave. Doulos, I don't know how to say that in plural, doulases, <laughs> slaves, doulases were often paid. They were trusted with immense amount of money and responsibilities for their masters, and they were allowed to buy their freedom most often. And when they did so, they often continued working for their master, and they even took their master's name. And Paul uses this word at the very beginning of his letter, you may remember, to introduce himself. He said, Paul, a servant or doulos of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. That's the same word in the Greek here um, in chapter 6 that can be translated servant, slave, or bondservant. Well, last week, in the first half of chapter 6, Paul answered the question, should we continue in sin in order that grace may abound? And what was the answer to that? No. No. (laughs) Okay, that's putting it briefly. By no means, I heard. God forbid. Absolutely not. That is absurd. (laughs) The main reason brought forth last week for the absurdity of sinning more that grace may abound is that we are dead to sin dead. (laughs) So sin has lost its power over us. And then we saw through the illustration of baptism, Paul said that Jesus' resurrection provides for us to live as resurrected people. No longer enslaved to sin and now able to walk in what Paul called newness of life. I like the ring to that. Newness of life. We are to consider ourselves dead to sin but alive to God. And we ended last week with verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. And today we pick up right there with Paul's perceived question that would come from his audience. What then? Should we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Again, he says, by no means. And Paul goes into another illustration of why that would be absurd, and it is this illustration of slavery. But the question itself is interesting to me. Who would ask that question? Sin more because we're not under law, we're under grace. Wouldn't it be those who assume that people need the restrictions of the law? What about you? Do you personally just feel better with a set of rules? I see some heads saying, yeah, I do. I found that that there's two types of people. Rules are made to be broken or rules are made to be followed. And I've talked to a lot of people who feel a lot more comfortable with the restraint that the law provides. Otherwise, they reason they will go wild with sin or others will, and it will affect them. Well, the truth truth be told, people went wild with sin, even with the law, even living under the law. 
don't people who feel more comfortable with the letter of the law, and you know, Paul ran into a lot of them in his day, don't they simply just not trust themselves to make good decisions? Do you trust yourself when it comes to temptation? Here's the real question. Is it ourselves that we're called to trust? I don't think there's a single verse in the Bible that says that. Trust in thyself. But you hear it out in the world, don't you? But rather, the Bible says, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. What a promise. God is so obviously for us, isn't he? He is going to provide the way of escape with every temptation. We just have to look for it and notice it. Again, we are never alone on this path to sanctification. He abides in us, and we are in him. That is close. (laughs) Romans 5.20 told us that People went wild with sin, and even more so under the law. Even more so. Remember, it said the trespass multiplied and sin increased. But the law was never meant to sanctify us, nor to give us eternal life. In fact, the law intensifies sin. How? Well, by telling us what sin is. Wait a minute. What do you mean by that? By telling us what sin is. (laughs) Well, you see, before the law came, you could, it's almost like we were, when we sinned, we were just naughty, right? We didn't know any better. But once the law came and told us what sin is, and then when we still do it, suddenly we've gone from naughty to being rebels, right? You see, the law made sin more offensive more serious. We also need to remember that Paul's letter is written to this new blossoming church in Rome that has both Gentile and Jewish converts to Christianity. And there were issues. Of course there would be issues. These two groups had such differing backgrounds about the law in particular. The law had been a trademark of Judaism for Hundreds and hundreds of years since the days of the Old Testament. 1,500 about. Paul himself had been a very strict, law-abiding Jew prior to his conversion. And so you can just really, if you read Paul's letters, you can see his desire to help these Jewish converts understand their very unique history with the law and how it relates then to their new belief in Jesus. The Romans Christians needed to know that the law didn't help them with their sin problem because what the law does is it delineates what good and bad behavior is, but it does not give the power to change, to resist temptation, to make good choices. Besides, the law was external. 
It was, it was uh, performance-based, but God looks where? At the heart. He looks at the internal. And this actually makes me think also back to chapter 2, and another example of tension between the Jew and the Gentile um, Christians was circumcision. Circumcision was a practice that God gave uniquely to the Jews. In chapter 2, though, we learned, for a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is true circumcision something external and physical. Rather, a person is a Jew who's one inwardly, and real circumcision is a matter of the heart. It's spiritual, not literal. Such a person receives praise not from others, but from God. Again, how powerful is it, that it's is it that it's written by Paul, a Pharisee, who was the high-level, strict religious Jew after he was converted and became a, Jewish follow a Jesus follower? And that's why I named our, our study A Matter of the Heart from that verse that I just read. And it encapsulates the main point, I think, of this first section of Romans, that God looks at the heart. And in our passage today is our memory verse. Good job on that, by the way. I was really listening. I heard a lot of voices. <laughs> Paul is thanking God that, that the Romans, having once been slaves of sin, have be, become obedient, not to the law, not to performing externally, but they have been, become obedient from the heart to the form of teaching to which they were entrusted. And what teaching is that? Grace. Grace. The teaching that salvation comes solely by grace and not keeping the law. Grace, the unearned favor and love of God. And even faith, Paul says in Ephesians, is not of ourselves, but it is a gift from God. Grace has replaced the law. And in today's passage, Paul is continuing to clarify for us what that means and what it doesn't mean. And it doesn't mean that, that a true follower of Jesus could, should, or would go into some type of sin free-for-all. And by the way, please keep in mind too, when Paul is talking about sin here, he's not just talking about a single wrongdoing. He's talking about a wrong being. Sinner. That was our identity before we met Jesus and followed him. Think about this. Before we came to faith, when we sinned, we were actually acting in perfect alignment with our nature, our old sin nature. But now for a believer, it, the opposite is true. Sin is a total disconnect from our new nature. It, sin is... It, it, speaking musically, it's not in harmony <laughs> with the believer. So when the Christian sins, there's this ugly, clanking, harsh dissonance that makes you want to just cover your ears. Sin is not in accordance with our new nature because if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new things have come. And by the way, Paul also used the word sin, sometimes referring to an intangible force. 
similar to uh, the schoolyard bully. And think about this. Sin is a bully that beats us up, but then tries to enlist us in his gang in the form of enslavement. Sin is a tyrant. Sin dominates. Sin is an evil ruler. And so Paul isn't thinking of sin as simply a list that measures your performance, like the sins um, from the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not lie, um, steal, cheat, swear. It's not always so specific like that. Paul is often speaking in, in a larger sense of this whole sin problem. With regard to that, God looks at the heart. And so when you think about it, we could even do the right thing with the wrong motive, and the right thing would then have sin involved, right? What is your inner motivation? That's what God is interested in. Again, it's the matter of the heart. It's a matter of the heart. Remember last week in verses 1 to 14, Paul had already put forth that the gospel of grace gives us a new and very, di- very different incentive to not sin. When we believed ourselves to be under the law as a system of pleasing God and, and for salvation, we were compelled by fear. <laughs> and understandably so, because our confidence, our only confidence in that case to perform well was in ourselves. For me, that's a scary thought. I don't know about you. Did you notice our passage today has another big, but now. Verse 22, but now. (laughs) It says that we have switched masters. (laughs) We have been freed from sin. And now we're enslaved to God who loves us. And so now our motivator has also changed now from fear to relationship to love, to gratitude. And our confidence is no longer in ourselves, but it is in our Savior. That is a big but now, a big change. What a difference between law and grace. We aren't free from serving or being slaves to God, as Paul put it. So the question isn't, do you serve? But as Bob Dylan implies in his song, the question is, whom do you serve? And now we are adding, why do you serve? The inward motivation, the matter of the heart. And isn't Paul saying that when we put our faith in Jesus, however you know, unique, your unique conversion experience looked Individually, it is in essence an act of self-surrender. We aren't enslaved, but we surrender to our master. Self-surrender means a complete obedience to our master, Jesus. And so logically and biblically, once we choose him as our master, we choose to obey him. In that sense, surrender leads to slavery in a good way. I think surrender almost always leads to slavery. This is in a good way. We become slaves of God, verse 22. Paul uses that phrase interchangeably with slaves to righteousness. 
In Matthew 6.24, Jesus adds something here, I think, to our passage, that you can't be a slave of two masters. And so we can't serve sin and him at the same time. But do you know what else Jesus says? It's in John 15, 15. He says, I no longer call you servants. I no longer call you servants. Because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have, been, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command. Love each other. Love each other. That passage right there, I think, gives us a fuller picture of this idea of being a doulos, a first century slave where the slave is set free but the, and the relationship then changes, but the doula stays close and serves his master even more by even taking his name and then is trusted to do things in his or her master's name. I have no longer called you servants, but instead I called you friends. That there is intimacy with God. Friends. Do you have that? Intimacy with God? What does that look like? As doulas, <laughs> of God, how do we foster this intimacy with our master? There's many ways. I, I came up with five. I'm going to leave you with these. First of all, we foster intimacy with our master by an awareness that he's here right now. And do you know what? His presence is him. His presence equals him. I, I, I realized at some point in my walk that, that I kind of thought, you know, just this like little piece of him was around me. He is so big. He, he could be 100% with you and 100% with me at the same time. His presence is him. <laughs> Simple, but powerful, powerful truth. If he's here, if his presence is him and he is with us, what more could we possibly need? Secondly, intimacy with our master comes by awe. May we never lose a sense of awe that God wants to talk to me, that he died so he could be in relationship with me, and that we could, so we could have that connection. It is a lie that, that he's a distant God way off somewhere. Even a thimble before, think about that, of God is a lot it's a lot of God. <laughs> we don't have to strive to make him come. He wants to be with us even more than we want to be with him. What a thought. Number three, intimacy happens with two-way conversation. 
two-way. He loves to hear from us. He loves to hear what's on our hearts and what's, what, what we love, what we hope for. He loves to hear of our love for him. He loves to hear our gratefulness and our challenges. But then just to stop and also say, you want to talk to me. What do you have to say with, to me today? You're not a distant God. What's on your heart today? God, what are you thinking about right now? Number four, we foster intimacy with our master by throwing out the rules. The rules. God is creative. He is so much bigger than this box that I try to put him in that's about this big. You know, he doesn't change, but he is very flexible. He knows us intimately, and he knows, if, for example, if we are having a particularly busy, busy week or a busy day, and when he sees that, he values even 10 minutes of concentrated time with him. He wants conversation with us as we go about that busy, busy day. The reason I have this in here, throw out the rules, because I remember a very um, legalistic camp director of my youth who had said that one had to have a quiet time every single day. It had to include prayer and scripture reading every day, and, and it had to be in the morning. And I remember, I went back to high school that, after that summer, and I, I, I would stay up late talking on the phone. I would barely get out of bed in time to get to school on time, and I would be racked with guilt that I hadn't had my quiet time, and so I would vow that I would get up earlier the next day and call me a bit slow, but it didn't occur to me that I could have had it in the afternoon. <laughs> I could have been talking to God the whole way to school and instead of sh shirking in shame from him. Do you see what legalism does? It keeps us from Jesus. It keeps me from Jesus thinking that he doesn't want to hear from me until I can get my act together. And the last, the fifth, um, and I know there's a lot more, but the fifth way to, to intimacy with our master is to take him everywhere you go. I could have been talking to Jesus on my way to school. I walked to school. And take risks. Ask him, what should we do together today? And just be aware, watching for something that God wants to do together that day. Even put yourself in a position where God is actually needed. <laughs> like, Asking a stranger in a store that you see seems really down or upset or hurting physically. And, and ask them in the, right there in the store, can I pray for you? Perhaps stop and, and help somebody who's run out of gas. Put away your fear and trust him and say, what can we do together today? How can we spend time together? And get him out of the box. Look for creative answers. So speaking from personal experience, the freest that we will ever be or feel is being a slave of God and under his lordship. 
and truly, true freedom is becoming what we are designed to be. And we are not designed to be God, but we are designed to enjoy a love relationship with him and then reflect his love to others as we serve him and others. It's one and the same thing, isn't it? And so I leave you with the questions, whom do you serve? Remember, you got to serve somebody. And why do you serve? Is it a matter of the heart? Let me pray for us. Oh, Lord, I, the thought, that, the thought that you want that kind of intimate relationship with each one of us and that you are big enough and powerful enough to meet each and every one of us, to walk <laughs> through each and every one of us day. That is, ah, that is, oh, you are so worthy of worship, Lord. And I pray that as we let these truths of Romans sink into us today, that we would live anew, we would live in newness of life that you offer. The old is past. Help us throw it out and just receive from you this newness. Teach us how to walk by walking with us. And Lord, may we be ever so aware of you right by our sides and even inside of us. What a gift. We praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.